Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. During today's gathering, we will be studying Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. This portion of scripture can be found on page 493 of the Blue ASV Bibles. If you haven't found them, those Bibles are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. And as always, those Bibles are available for you to take home if you do not already have one. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, you told your disciples that your word is life. And God, we we just ask that we would encounter the life in your word today. God, that it would confront us and correct us, that it would encourage and strengthen us that it would instruct us and, Lord, that we would conform our lives to it by the uh, influence and the, and the power and the working of your Holy Spirit. God, I ask that you would give us all ears to hear and that we would, Lord, uh, see how this word applies not to those sitting amongst us, Lord, but how it applies to we ourselves. And God, I ask that you would Help us to hear that and know that, even as I ask that you would assist me in my frailty, my weakness, in my ignorance, Lord, and that you would just help me to proclaim your word in a way that is worthy of your holiness and worthy of the greatness of the word itself. And so, Lord, I ask all these things in the name of the one who has redeemed us from hell. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Continuing in our series in the book of Mark, when we wrapped up last week, we saw that Jesus had confronted the position seeking and uh, the lust for power, the lust for greatness, not out there somewhere, but right within his own disciples. If you'll recall, they were arguing on the way who was the greatest among his followers. And he told them if anyone would be first, that he must be last of all. And he must be the servant of all. He told them that they must take the posture of trusting children. And they have to relinquish all pretense of sophistication, all pretense of importance. And furthermore... They were not to give preference to exalted ones, but they were to sacrificially, with their lives, serve outcasts. 
serve rejects, serve the disregarded, to serve the very least of society. And so, continuing on that same theme of what is expected by his followers, Jesus goes on in our text to say, to say, to say that they must never, those who are following him must never do anything to harm the burgeoning faith in the least of his followers. But they must be diligent to make sure that even every part of their own lives are constantly guarded by being preyed upon by sin's deceit. And so we're going to take this text that Raven read to us and we're going to look at it in two primary categories. First, we're going to see how we're to stand against temptation to sin for the sake of others and then for ourselves. And then we're going to see how this is in line with our understanding that as Paul says it, our life is to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which he says is our spiritual worship. And so our goal as we look at this text, is going to be to rejoice in the promise of this text. You may not have caught it on first reading, but this text has a tremendous promise. And the promises of this text is that God will preserve and He will purify those who honor Him by sacrificing all for the sake of Him. So, turning back to the text, if you still have it open in your Bible... Look again with me at verse 42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, at first glance, when you read that, and you may have even heard this verse interpreted in this way, it would be easy to assume that this verse is simply a prohibition on the mistreatment or the sinful enticement of little children. Now, clearly, let me be very clear about this, to abuse or to mistreat or to lead a little child into sin is a grievous transgression of God's law. And even in our civil laws, in in, uh, Lubbock, in the state of Texas, in the United States, we recognize that a crime is more heinous when it's perpetrated against a little child. And it's a good thing that we feel that way. Amen? And But while this is true, the context of this passage, and what I mean by that, what comes in the text before it, and what comes immediately after it, and, and the Greek word that is used here for little ones, point to a wider and, I would say, a better interpretation of Jesus' words. And not only His words but the warning that is attached to his words. Now, remember what had happened. He just told his disciples, and what we discussed last week, that whoever receives a little child in his name receives him. And not only that, but whoever receives him receives the Father. And, and we saw, as we discussed that, we saw he wasn't, uh, he wasn't only talking about actual little children, although certainly they're included, but about all who were not highly regarded by the world. Whether they're young, whether they're poor, whether they're ignorant, 
whether they're just despised in some despised class of society, Jesus said that, that our attention, our heart, and even the way we model our lives should be turned towards people like that, not towards the ones that we consider great, the celebrities and the kings and emperors of this life, but towards the lowest. And this is reflected in the Greek word that's used here for little ones. It's, it's mikros. And mikros means... Uh, it can mean little infants and children, but it also can mean people of little to no rank or status in society. And so, what is Jesus saying in this passage? He's saying that if through your own approval of immorality, if your own, if you, if through your own inattention to Scripture, if you tend to shrug off the commands and the the uh, uh, demands of Scripture. And if, if by doing so you lead someone of weak or immature faith into unbelief or into transgression of God's law, whether it's a child or a new believer, Christ says that you will be held accountable not only for your own sin in doing so, but for their sin as well. Jesus says those who lead others to sin should would be smart to rather desire to have a millstone tied to their neck and to be thrown into the sea than to suffer what he has in store for them. Now, you may not be familiar with the idea of a millstone. A millstone was one of two stones, actually. They're large round stones and and uh, those who harvested grains and corn would place that grain and corn in between the two stones and they'd, they would turn the, the upper stone over the lower one, which was stationary, to grind up that, that grain to where it was usable as flour or whatever. And these were not small stones. They, the, the, we have examples in museums of millstones from this area, the, uh, this era rather, that weigh about one and a half tons. This is not a small thing. And they were so heavy, they had to be rotated by teams of livestock. Now, I said all that to ask you this question. Can you imagine trying to breaststroke with one of those things around your neck? I can't imagine a more terrible fate than to slowly sink to the bottom of the ocean drowning with a millstone around your neck. But what Jesus is saying to us here, and it is a hard saying of Jesus, but we can't just read past it. He's saying that what is coming to those who cause his little ones to sin will be something much, much worse. This recalls what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 19, Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, with this stern warning from Jesus, this vivid imagery of judgment, think for a moment, if you will, of what awaits every pastor of a progressive church in America who has elevated human wisdom while they denigrate the living Word of God. Imagine what awaits the purveyors of the prosperity gospel who 
portray godliness as nothing more than a means to financial gain in this life. Think about parents who drag their kids to church week in and week out, yet live only a hypocritical life contrary to Christ every week in their homes. How can such people, under the light of such a warning, possibly stand before a holy God? Now, it's easy to look at progressive churches, prosperity gospel, and hypocritical parents. And while those types of people are certainly in danger of knowing God's wrath, if we turn and return to the context of this passage, we find that Jesus had probably a more narrow and specific group in mind when he uttered this somber warning. Who is his audience? It was his own disciples that he was talking to. He wasn't saying, look out there to the, the categories that I mentioned. It was his own disciples. Why? Because they concerned themselves with personal greatness. They even were arguing among themselves. Who was the best? And let me just tell you this morning, please listen to me. Anytime we want people to look to us instead of to Jesus, we will always lead them in the wrong direction. We will always lead them away from Christ and towards sin if we become the focal point. And Jesus was showing these men the risk of making themselves the goal. As I said last week, they didn't have to worry about who the greatest because Jesus was the greatest. And so if we point to Jesus, we always know we got it right. Amen? And so from the context of this passage, we all have great, great reason to examine ourselves. We can't just assign it to some group that we see to be an error outside of us. We have great reason to examine ourselves. The question you must ask yourself this morning, does your life consistently present to others the glory of Jesus? Or do you try to display something in yourself as having glory? Church, our cry has to be the exact same cry that John the Baptist uttered. He must increase but I must decrease. May it always be so here at Northridge Life Church. Now, further examining Jesus' words in the Bible, the sea, Jesus talks about being tossed into the sea, it often represents the depths of evil, the depths of death, the depths of chaos. And think about Jonah when he rejects God's command to go to Nineveh. Where did he wind up? Right in the sea. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And this is why, you'll recall, Jesus demonstrated His glory, demonstrated the fact He was God by doing what? Well, first, He commanded the sea... 
showing he had authority over it. Second, he walked on top of the sea, showing he had authority over it. This is the very reason why the book of Revelation cryptically says that in the end, when Christ reigns, the sea will be no more. Therefore, when Jesus spoke to his disciples and saying those who cause little ones to sin will be cast into the sea, he wasn't speaking of the Mediterranean Sea, which would have been the sea that these people would have thought of. He was talking about hell. And this becomes really clear, abundantly clear, when he switches from speaking about our influence on other people, on his little ones, to talking about the ways in which we jeopardize ourselves with sin. Let's read it again, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus' emphatic counsel is for us to rid ourselves of anything that would imperil our escape from that most dreadful place. And that is a great reminder for us all. See, we think lightly of hell for one simple reason. Because we think lightly of the holiness of God. For some of us, hell is nothing more than a curse word. We sprinkle in what the hell, who the hell, why the hell. We just sprinkle those things in as if that was the proper idea behind the word. Or we use it as a metaphor. War is hell. This week was hell. My pain is hell. But rarely for us, we might use it for a curse or a metaphor, but rarely is hell any more for us a reality. But if we truly knew, as Jesus knew, the terror of that place, none of us in this room would ever be flippant about hell again. Never. Jesus is saying that hell is real, that hell is literal, that it's a place that is eternal, that it's a place where the torment of it is conscious, and and it's a place where there is, in fact, torment. And on those... Four reasons he's saying that hell is a place to be avoided by whatever means necessary. He describes it as a place of undying maggots. Now, what do maggots do? Aren't you glad you came to church today? Maggots devour rotting things. Why do the maggots never die in hell? Because the thing they're devouring never is fully consumed. This goes on and on and on. 
It's a symbol of the torment of hell. But not only is it a place of undying maggots, it's a place of unquenched fire, Jesus says. Elsewhere, he says that it's a place of weeping and a place of gnashing of teeth, which symbolizes tremendous, unspeakable agony. And the thing that is very sobering for me as I preach to some of you is that it is the very place where some of you in this room will spend eternity. And that breaks my heart. I wish that I could plead with you to take the position that Jesus takes here. He says, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, avoid this fate. Now, even when I say that, some of you are shrugging me off. You think hell is only mythology. It belongs in the domain of little old ladies. It's old-fashioned. It's for delusional people. But may I just remind you that most everything we know about hell in the Scriptures came from the lips of Jesus Christ Himself. Not some apostle, not some prophet, but Jesus Himself told us almost everything we know about hell. In fact, the Greek word for hell in this passage and several others is Gehenna. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but when Jesus said it, it meant a lot. See, because Gehenna was not some place in the spirit world. Gehenna was a real geographical location that everyone Jesus was speaking to would have been familiar with. It was in the Valley of Hinnom, which the Valley of Hinnom is, in Greek, is Gehenna. And that was a deep ravine south of Jerusalem. And in that place, parents in the darkest days of Israel's history would sacrifice their children by burning them in fire to the pagan god Molech. But if you read the history of the kings of Israel, you'll find that good king Josiah put an absolute stop to that wickedness and he turned the place into a communal garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. And it was used for this purpose also in Jesus' day. Now, many of you have had to haul stuff out to the dump and you may have a very sanitized North American 21st century idea of the dump. But not so in Jesus' day. Not only was garbage thrown into this place, but human waste, dead animals, and even dead criminals who had been executed for their crimes were all thrown into that pit and burned there. The large population of the city of Jerusalem ensured that the fires that were, that were burning in Gehenna never went out. It was a perpetual fire. And Jesus called the place of the wicked's judgment. He uses this imagery. He calls it Gehenna 11 times in the New Testament. And because of this, because Jesus uses Gehenna as a symbol for what we call hell, people often wonder if Jesus' descriptions of hell were symbolic. And it may surprise you to hear me say, as someone who absolutely reveres the Word of God, that they probably were, in a sense, symbolic. Now, if you're fearing hell this morning, don't let me say that, that, they were, that they're potentially symbolic give you any sense of relief whatsoever. Because let me explain biblical symbols to you. Biblical symbols are always given for, uh, for the benefit of our weak 
human minds. But the realities behind the symbol are always so much deeper. They're much deeper than the symbols that describe them. And so Jesus talks about hell in terms of fire and worms and gnashing of teeth and weeping. You can guarantee that the reality of hell is a thousand, a million times worse than the way Jesus is describing it. Hell is much worse than an ever-burning garbage heap outside the city of Jerusalem. Similarly, sometimes people casually describe hell as a separation from God. But see, that's not punishment. Because the wicked who are in hell right now would be, they would love nothing more, nothing more in all the world than to be separated eternally from the God that they hate. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? Did you know that the Bible does never teach that hell is separation from God? David said in Psalm 139, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. The Bible teaches that hell involves the full, eternal, conscious presence of God. But it's experienced not like it is now in an outpouring of His love and grace, but in an outpouring of His wrath. Let me prove it to you from Scripture. This is inarguable. Revelation 14.10, talking about the wicked who will be cast into the lake of the fire, a lake of fire. And he says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Some of you have watched too many Tom and Jerry cartoons and you think there's a a devil in red pajamas that's waiting to poke you in the rear end with a pitchfork once you go to hell. But it's not the devil that's overseeing the punishment in hell. It is the Lamb of God Himself. So knowing perfectly the terrors of the place I've tried weakly to describe, Jesus says it would be better to chop off your hand, to sever your foot, to pull out your eye and enter life blind or crippled than to be thrown into hell with two hands, two eyes, two feet. He's saying in this verse to cast away whatever causes you to sin. Nothing is worth the eternal, just, and righteous torment of your soul. Now, clearly, Jesus is using overstatement here to illustrate a very real point. He's not stating that you should actually go mutilate your body. He's not saying that you should eliminate body parts. What he means is that there is nothing in this life that you can retain that is worth the loss of your soul. Nothing. Not a single thing. Not even the very parts of this body. No matter how precious those things may seem to you, is eternity in hell worth what is in your grasping fist? See, our hands in this verse represent the sinful things that we do. Our feet represent 
where we go to do those things. Our eyes represent what we're gazing at in our sinful desire. See, but the truth is, and Jesus has already told this, that sin doesn't originate in our hands, our feet, or our eyes. Jesus has told us already that sin proceeds from our heart. Remember, we read it a few weeks ago, Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So we don't need to sever hands or feet or pluck out eyes. What we really need is for the Holy Spirit Himself to extract our sinful, dead, deceitful, rock-hard hearts and give us new, living, holy, truthful, soft, and sensitive hearts. And this is what He promises to do through the Gospel. This is how we have confidence and the only way we have confidence that we will escape the flames of hell. It's when we repent and believe in Jesus, when we cease to have confidence in ourselves and our own goodness, that how we use our hands and where we go with our feet and what we look at with our eyes radically changes. Now, instead of doing all kinds of wickedness with our hands. We use our hands to cling to Jesus with hands of faith. We run to Jesus with feet shod with readiness given to us by the gospel of peace. We look upon Jesus in His holy word and we grow in faith. He redeems our hands. He redeems our feet. He redeems our eyes. And after teaching all this, Jesus says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, in two verses, Jesus references salt four times. So if you're sitting there, trying to look smart and you're wondering what this verse means, especially in the context of this text, you are not alone. (laughs) Theologians have debated these words for the last 20 centuries. And there's different views concerning the meaning, the exact meaning of this passage. But for the sake of time, let me exploit my role as the pastor of this church and share with you the one that seems to me to be the most likely interpretation instead of muddying the waters with all the others. In order to understand this verse, it helps if we go back to a passage in the Old Testament the disciples would have been extremely familiar with. Leviticus 2.13 says this, With all your offerings you shall offer salt. It was a commandment for every offering that was offered by the people of Israel that they should add salt to those sacrifices. And so what I think is happening here is that Christ's followers are being recognized 
by Jesus as living sacrifice. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. While unbelievers would be wise if they could give up bodily appendages to give up to avoid hell, they instead cling to passing earthly treasures that will all be re- removed from them when they cross the border of this fleeting life. Have you ever heard the saying, you can't take it with you? Well, that is in no way more true than with the lost, with the wicked. But in a very real sense, we Christians never avoid loss either. We too must suffer loss. But see, we don't cut things out of our life for fear of judgment. We do it. We suffer loss because of our love for Christ. See, Christ has already been to hell for us. He took our judgment on the cross. And so there's no need for us who believe in Him, who cling to Him, to face judgment. And so for us, looking instead to heavenly gains for all our earthly losses, we gladly sacrifice all of this passing stuff. Amen? So all people, whether they're saved or lost, will be salted with fire. But whereas the lost will be consumed by the fire of God's wrath, the elect will be preserved by the salt of His grace. Salt's a preservative. And everyone will be salted with fire. But that's not only that, they'll only be preserved by the salt of His grace, but they'll be purified by His sanctifying fire. Our preservation unto purity will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord who will bring us out of the fire that we must experience like gold refined. Isn't that a great promise? It's a wonderful promise. If I were a different kind of preacher, I'd promise you, you're never going to have problems. Just trust in God. Everything will be just hunky-dory. But instead, I tell you, you will face fire. You will face trials. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you'll come out more beautiful, more precious than you ever, ever could imagine. Practically, this means that hardship and pain and persecution are going to come. You will not successfully avoid it if you're a believer in Jesus. But hardship and pain and persecution will never result in the destruction of the believer because of God's persevering power. Not because your tight grip on Him, but because of His tight grip on you. The wicked have no such hope. Many of them may have the appearance of prosperity, the appearance of peace in this life. The day is quickly coming when the winds of God's wrath will carry it all away. And it will be no more. And, and this reason, this per, uh, preserving element of salt, is why Christ says, salt is good. But if the salt 
has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that we must examine ourselves against the Word of God to see if our faith is genuine, if our salvation is legitimate. Because if we're found lacking, if because we came to a church like this or because... You know, we, we threw a few bucks to a preacher somewhere or, or any of those religious good deeds we think are so important. If we are found lacking with the, pres- the, the preserving grace of God at the end, what can restore that offer of grace when time has passed? Nothing. If the salt has lost its saltiness, it is good for nothing. Jesus instructs his disciples, have salt in yourselves. Listen to me. You're a believer today. You are preserved by grace. Not your hard work, not your good deeds. You're preserved by grace. So make sure... That according to the word of God, in truth, that you are covered, that you are anchored, that you are kept and preserved by nothing but God's grace. Put no trust in your religious thoughts, in your vainglorying or your good works, because it is God alone who can both save you and preserve you. There is no other hope. The last word that Jesus utters in this passage is be at peace with one another. This whole teaching began with Jesus correcting the position seeking of the twelve. And so, as Christians, we often are guilty of this. We can speak in lofty words about giving up everything for Jesus, but let me let you in on a little secret. The proof that you've given up everything for Jesus is only when it's seen that you are constantly and humbly laying down your life for the sake of others. The Apostle John told us that anyone who says they love the Lord and hates his brother is a liar. That's what John said. So if you want proof that you are really giving your all to Jesus, examine the way that you are laying down your life for other people. And may God help us. May God awaken those of you who through religious confidence or just the own impenitence of your own heart are rushing towards that day when you will know the realities of the hell that Jesus described. May God help you today to see the truth. May the Holy Spirit open your heart to know the truth. And may you come quickly to the feet of Jesus and asking that He admit you into His great salvation. And for the rest of you, stand strong. Don't move. Don't waver. And don't fear. Because you are being preserved until that final day 
by the grace of Jesus. And in that, you can stake all of your hope. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I I thank you for your word. God, I wish that I'd had permission from you to just skip over this text. God, I would always much rather speak of the glories of your eternal kingdom than the horrors of an eternal hell. But Lord, I pray that you would take the word that you uttered deliberately, intentionally, and on purpose, and that you would use them to like a bloodhound finding his man, that you would use those words to find those who need to trust you this morning. God, that they would not delay, that they would spiritually cut off hands and feet and pluck out eyes and run to Jesus. That they could know real life, that they could be preserved by the salt of grace, purified by the sanctifying fires of God. And Lord, I pray that you would do your work in them today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Helpers, come and join us up front. We talk often here about the different things that communion means. And one of the things that I would like to encourage you in this morning is that when you partake as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ of this bread and this cup pray that your heart would be overcome and overwhelmed with the joy and the knowledge of the fact that this broken body this poured out blood was Jesus experiencing the hell on the cross that you deserve, that I deserve. And so for those of you who have placed your trust in Christ, let that knowledge, those elements hit your taste buds, let that knowledge just cause you to rejoice in what Christ has done for you. For those of you whose soul this morning is in turmoil, Because this hard message has stirred you to consider where you are, or should I say, where you not are with Christ. Would you just remain in your place this morning? Would you consider these words? And more than anything, would you please make a beeline to me, or to Gabriel, or to Pastor David, after the service, and let us share with you the joy of knowing, and how you can know, that Christ, through His Gospel and the Holy Spirit by His power, has extracted your sinful heart and given you a brand new heart. So for the rest of you, on a Sunday morning when we preached about hell, I'm calling you to come celebrating because you are preserved by the salt of God's grace. Amen. 
So if you would, come receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we'll share them together in just a moment. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, for those that have been rescued from hell, let's give thanks to God. Father, we thank you for your great mercy, your undying love, the love that you showed to us in this very fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, I ask you to remind us of this truth Cause us through an action of your Holy Spirit to be eternally grateful for this reality. And God, give us the heart of worshipers always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to pronounce this benediction over you from Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.